Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, and reading again at verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. We've probably all heard the phrase, nothing ventured, nothing gained. I wonder how many of us haven't embarked on a particular venture because we feared failure. We didn't apply for a job because we feared rejection, refusal, ridicule. We didn't ask that person on a date because we feared rejection, refusal, ridicule. We didn't make an appeal for help because we feared rejection, refusal, ridicule. Do you know that can be true even in the Christian life? We, we can find ourselves maybe dithering and delaying putting off and procrastinating when it comes to doing something for the Lord's cause, Christ's cause, because we fear failure. We've concluded that whatever it is is impossible before we've even begun. Well, this evening we're continuing our studies in the book of Nehemiah and we're looking at this request that he makes of the Persian king. And we're going to look at it under two headings, the concern of the king and then the courage of the cupbearer. First, you have the concern of the king. Look at verses 1 to 3. Here, Nehemiah focuses on the king's concern for his cupbearer. In verse 1, we see the setting. We're told that it was the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, beginning of verse 1. In chapter 1, Nehemiah had recorded the events that had occurred in the month of Kislev. Uh, he had received a report from his brother Hanani and certain men from Judah who had told him about the lamentable condition of the Lord's people, the Loeb of the Lord's cause. And Nehemiah had responded by fasting and praying, by weeping and mourning, and that had continued for many days. It is now the month of Nisan. Four months have passed since Nehemiah had received that report from these men from Judah about the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. It is now the Jewish New Year, it is the Persian New Year, and it's going to mark a turning point, a new era in the life of Nehemiah and indeed the life of the Lord's people. We're then told that Nehemiah was bringing wine to the king. Look again at verse 1. But the new year was a time like every other new year for feasting, for celebration, for banqueting. And we're told that wine has been brought before the king. And Nehemiah takes the wine and he personally brings it to the king. We've already seen that Nehemiah held a trusted and honoured position of cupbearer to the king. He was responsible for testing and tasting all the ingredients that went into the king's cup, into the king's goblet. Every day, Nehemiah put his life on the line, laid his life on the line for the king. And now he brings the cup to the king. 
And we're told that Nehemiah hadn't been sad in the king's presence. Verse 1 again. It wasn't the done thing for the cupbearer to be sad or sullen, dejected or downcast in the presence of the king. The the cupbearer was meant to reflect the, the radiant joy of being in the king's presence. He was meant to be going about with a with a smile on his face while at the same time carrying out his duties diligently and seriously. And up until now, Nehemiah had been doing this in a very professional manner. Whenever I think of Nehemiah, I think of Carson from Downton Abbey, that that butler. And and those of you here who watch Downton Abbey uh, know what I mean. He's just this very professional man who does things to perfection. But things are very different on this occasion. We move from the setting to the question. Look at verse 2. The king notices a change in his cupbearer. Nehemiah has served him for many years without fault, without failing, any flaw. But these four months of weeping and mourning, fasting and praying are showing on Nehemiah's face. And the king notices this. And the king proceeds to question Nehemiah. He asks him about why his face is sad. He highlights that Nehemiah isn't sick. Nothing physical is troubling him. He's not got some physical ailment that has resulted in this change in his face. And so the king concludes that this must be sickness of heart. Something is weighing heavily on Nehemiah's mind. Something is burdening Nehemiah's heart. And the king wants to know what it is. He's inviting Nehemiah. He's speaking to Nehemiah. He's saying to his butler, tell me about what's going on in your life. We move from the question to the answer in verse 2 and 3. Nehemiah writes in verse 2 that he was afraid. He's afraid because he's noticed the king's, because the king has noticed his downcast disposition. This was a major breach of court etiquette. Nehemiah could be sacked, he could be fired for being downcast in the presence of the king. But he's even more afraid because of what he's got to ask the king. Twelve years previously, the king had forbidden any rebuilding work on the city of Jerusalem. He saw Jerusalem as a rebellious city. He wanted Jerusalem crushed, wanted it annihilated, wanted it wiped out of existence. And Nehemiah knows that he's got to go and ask the king for permission to rebuild that city. And that leaves him afraid. But despite his fears, Nehemiah tells the king about what's troubling him. Look at verse 3. He begins by expressing his desire that the king would live forever. He knows that he needs to ask permission to rebuild this rebellious city. And before he says anything, he says, O king, live forever. God save the king. He's saying to the king, I am not harboring any treasonous plot against you. I am am fully committed to you. I am 100% behind you. I I am not a traitor. I am not a spy. I I am not a fly in the ointment. And he continues by admitting that, yes, his face is indeed sad. He cannot deny that. And he concludes by explaining why his face is sad. The city, the very burial place of his fathers, is in ruins. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, friends, as we consider this verse, the lesson that we're being shown is that the world ought to see the burden that we have for the Lord's people and the Lord's cause. The world ought to see the burden that we have for the Lord's people and the Lord's cause. That's what we see in Nehemiah. The Lord's people are in a lamentable condition. The Lord's cause is at a very low ebb, as low as it has ever been in the history of God's people. 
And it's something that's left Nehemiah weeping, mourning, fasting, praying for many days. And the king can see that this man is a troubled man. He's a man with a great weight on his mind. He's a man with a great burden on his heart. And you know, friends, the same ought to be true for ourselves. Last week we said that the Christian should be emotionally invested in the condition of the Lord's people and the condition of the Lord's cause. And this week we're saying the world needs to see that. John Piper has often said that the world is not impressed by Christians who seem to have the same ambitions, the same passions as they do with a little bit of Jesus thrown in. The world is not impressed, you know that yourselves, by Christians who are carrying on as if they've got the same ambitions, the same passions as the world has, but they've just got this little bit of Jesus thrown in on the side. No, the world needs to see Christians who have an emotional investment when it comes to the condition of the Lord's people, the condition of the Lord's cause. Christians who are full of joy when they see the Lord's gospel advancing. Christians who are full of joy when they see the Lord's kingdom expanding. Christians who are full of joy when they see the Lord's people flourishing. That is what the world needs to see. But they also need to see Christians who lament, Christians who weep, Christians who have a burden when the Lord's cause is at a low ebb. And when the Lord's people are in a lamentable condition. That is what a watching world, the people of Lewis, need to see. They may not take the Lord all that seriously. They may not give the Lord a second thought. But they should be able to see that those who call themselves the followers of Christ take their Lord and the condition of his cause and the condition of his people seriously. They're emotionally invested in it. Can I ask you this evening... Do your friends, do your family, do your colleagues know that you are emotionally invested in the Lord's people and the Lord's cause? Do they know this? Can they see this? They might know that we're emotionally invested in what's going on in Eastern Europe. They might know that we're emotionally invested by what's going on with COVID. They might know that we're emotionally invested by what's going on at Ibrox or Parkhead or Old Trafford. But do they know that we're emotionally invested by what's going on when it comes to the condition of the Lord's people, the condition of the Lord's cause? There's the concern of the king. We move, though, from the concern of the king to the courage of the cupbearer. That's in verses 4 down to 8, where Nehemiah focuses on his courage before the king. Verse 4, we hear the prayer. The king has another question at the beginning of verse 4. He's seen the downcast demeanour of his trusted cupbearer, and upon asking him about this, he's heard that his cupbearer is upset over the condition of his ancestral city, Jerusalem. And the king asks him, What are you requesting? Now, Nehemiah is not asked for anything, but the king can see that from Nehemiah's words, from Nehemiah's tone, that he's not just relaying information to him. Nehemiah is coming 
with a word, with a tone that indicates that he is wanting something. He is requesting something from the king. And so the king says to Nehemiah, what do you want? What are you asking for? Don't speak in riddles, Nehemiah. I know you're bothered. I know you're upset. But but tell me, what do you want? And Nehemiah responds to the question of the king by praying to the God of heaven. Look at verse 4. Derek Thomas has written that Nehemiah had an instinct for prayer. He had prayed after hearing about the condition of the Lord's people and the condition of the Lord's cause back in chapter 1. He now prays as soon as the king asks him about what he's requesting in chapter 2. As far as Nehemiah is concerned, this is the most critical, critical and crucial moment of his life. His life is hanging in the balance. One wrong word, Nehemiah is finished. One wrong word and the king will say, don't simply refuse to rebuild Jerusalem. Let's run Jerusalem right down to the ground. Nehemiah knows that everything is on the line. We move though from the prayer to the proposal in verse 5. Nehemiah frames his request in a very humble and subservient way. Look at the beginning of verse 5. He acknowledges that what he's requesting can only happen if it pleases the king. He also acknowledges that what he's requesting can only happen if he, the king's servant, has found favour in the king's sight. He doesn't say, I want this. He says, if it please the king and if I have found favour in your sight. And having framed his request, Nehemiah makes the request. Look again at verse 5. He asks for permission to return to Judah and to the city of his fathers. And after returning to Judah, he asks for permission to rebuild the city. It is a request that is so daring that it almost takes our breath away. This is like one of Putin's cupbearers, one of Putin's attendants going up to him and saying, leave Kiev alone. If I don't leave Kiev alone, rebuild Kiev. We move from the proposal to the permission in verse 6. The king has another question. Beginning of verse 6, Nehemiah notes that the queen was sitting beside the king, emphasizing the regal nature of the setting. And the king asks, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? The king's not willing that Nehemiah go away indefinitely forever and ever. And Nehemiah finds himself able to answer the king. Look at verse 6. He tells the king that he, the time that he will need to rebuild the city. He's making it clear that this is no pipe dream. This isn't Nehemiah saying, well, I just have a great vision to see Jerusalem rebuild. And, and it would be lovely to see the temple and lovely to see the palaces. And, and I can't wait. And I just want to see it built. And the king says, well, how long is it going to take? And Nehemiah says, well, I don't know. I just want to see it built. No, Nehemiah has the exact time scale prepared. Did you notice that, verse 6? And finally, we move from the permission of the king, after he's heard about Nehemiah's time scale, to the provision of the king in verses 7 and 8. Because Nehemiah is not finished speaking, he has some further requests for the king in verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. He asks that letters be sent to the governors of the province beyond the river. Nehemiah knows that this journey to Jerusalem is a dangerous one. It's 900 miles. And if Nehemiah is fortunate, he'll be able to do it on a horse or on a donkey. He may even have to walk part of it. 900 miles, many enemies along the road, many anti-Jewish feeling along the road. And so he asks that the king write to the provincial governors to ensure that he is provided with safe passage as he makes the journey. But he goes on and he asks that the letter be sent to the keeper of the king's forest. Do you remember Jerusalem's been burnt down? 
Nehemiah knows that timber is needed. He knows that timber is needed for this building project. He, he needs timber for the, the gates of the fortress of the temple. He needs timber for the walls of the city. He even needs timber for the house that he is going to live in while the project is going ahead. And so he asks the king to write to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. He says, yeah, I know that the Jerusalem economy has collapsed. And, and I'm not going to be able to afford this timber. I don't even know how I'll be able to get hold of timber in Jerusalem. But, but I know that Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, has all the timber that we need. So, so, your majesty, can you write to him and see that we get that timber? And having heard Nehemiah's request, we see Nehemiah's recognition. Look at verse 8. Nehemiah writes that the king granted him what he asked. He gives him permission to return and rebuild Jerusalem. Gives him letters for the governors and the timber merchant. But what Nehemiah celebrates as he reflects on all of this is not the benevolence of the king, not the kindness of the king, not even his own winsomeness or persuasiveness. No, Nehemiah celebrates the providence of God. He sees that God is in this. He says, the hand of my God was upon me. You know, some of us, I know I would probably say if I was Nehemiah, well, I went up to the, the, the local councillor, I went up to the prime minister, I went up to the local governor and I said to him, I really need uh, this, this timber and I need these letters and, and, and I did such a good job persuading him that he, he opened up all the funds for me. No, none of that with Nehemiah. He says, the king granted it to me because the hand of my God was on me. Nehemiah can only explain what had happened by appeal to the hand of his God, the providence of his God being upon him. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we can see that they contain four very important lessons for ourselves. These verses highlight the importance of arrow prayers. That's what we see in Nehemiah. The king has asked him about what he's requesting for his ruined ancestral city. And Nehemiah's first response is to pray to the God of heaven. Quietly pray to the God of heaven. Quickly pray to the God of heaven. He knows that the Lord is near. He knows that the Lord is an ever-present help in a time of trouble. And so Nehemiah prays. And you know, friends, isn't that an encouragement for ourselves? We can go to the Lord, as I said earlier on, we can go to the Lord at any place and at any time. We can be sitting at the office desk. We can be standing in the shopping queue. We can be driving in the car. We can be walking along to school and we can be shooting up those arrow prayers to the God of heaven. Listen to these words from Charles Spurgeon. A help that is not present when we need it is of, no, is of small value. The anchor which is left at home is of no use to the seaman in the hour of the storm. The money which he used to have is of no worth to the debtor when a writ is out against him. Very few earthly helps could be called very present. They are usually far in the seeking, far in the using, and farther still when once used. But as for the Lord our God, he is present when we seek him, present when we need him, and present when we have already enjoyed his aid. He is more present, he is very present, more present than the nearest friend can be, 
for he is in us in our trouble, more present than we are to ourselves, for sometimes we lack presence of mind. He is always present, effectually present, sympathetically present, altogether present. He is present now. If this is a gloomy season, let us rest ourselves upon him. He is our refuge. Let us hide in him. He is our strength. Let us array ourselves with him. He is our help. Let us lean upon him. He is our very present help. Let us repose in him now. We need not have a moment's care or an instant's fear. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Isn't it marvellous, friends, that we have a Lord who is near? Isn't it marvellous that we have a Lord who is an ever-present help? Isn't it marvellous that we have a God whom we can bring our arrow prayers to? That we don't need to say, well, I can only come to the Lord if I am in a sacred building. Or I can only come to the Lord if I am completely undistracted from everything going on in me in my life. We have a God whom we can bring our arrow prayers to. But these verses also highlight the importance not only of arrow prayers, but also advanced planning. That's what we see in Nehemiah. He's been praying since the month of Kislev, and while he's been praying, it's clear that he's been planning. He's been doing his homework. He's been doing his research. And so when the king asks him about what he needs for the building project, Nehemiah is ready with an answer. He knows how long it's going to take to rebuild Jerusalem. He knows that he wants to rebuild Jerusalem. He knows the protection that he will require as he goes to Jerusalem. He even knows the name of the local timber merchant in Jerusalem. He's done his research, done all his planning. And you know, again, that is such an important lesson for ourselves. You know, sometimes we hear words like strategy and planning and and our heckles go up. We say, that's not very spiritual. But strategy and spirituality, planning and prayer should really go hand in hand. It's important that we make plans, that we make preparations when it comes to the Lord's work. You know, I love hearing stories about spontaneous conversations, these out-of-the-blue conversations that people have with an unconverted neighbour or with a backslidden friend. I love these conversations, but you know, the reality is a lot of the conversations that we might have with an unconverted neighbour, with a backslidden friend, come about through careful, prayerful planning. Careful, prayerful preparation. Praying that the Lord would open the doors. Praying that we would be given the words to say. Praying that the Spirit might use us. These verses don't simply highlight the importance of advanced planning, though. They also highlight the importance of active participation. That's what we see in Nehemiah. He is burdened over the condition of the Lord's people, burdened over the condition of the Lord's cause, and he prays about this. But he's also ready to be the answer to his prayers. He is ready to go to Jerusalem and get engaged with this building project. He is ready to do all that he can for the Lord's people and the Lord's cause at a practical level. And you know, again, that is such an important lesson for ourselves. I remember saying to a group of friends once that there are some Christians, and they they are lovely Christians, they are very spiritual Christians, but they are so spiritual 
that were they to see an old lady struggling across the road with her shopping, they would be inclined to stop and pray that the Lord might give her the strength to carry her shopping or at least provide someone to carry the shopping for her without raising a finger to do anything for her themselves. You know, friends, it's important to pray. It's important to plan. But it's also important to participate, to move into action. Last week I highlighted that we are in the process right now of regrouping, rebuilding, reaching out to our community with the gospel after two years of lockdowns and restrictions. That's what every congregation is doing right now. <laughs> but we are also in the process, aren't we, of going about trying to get a building of our own. We have, we have a lot to do. And it requires a lot of prayer. It requires a lot of planning. But friends, it also requires a lot of participation. It requires a lot of action. We can pray for that unconverted neighbour, but eventually we need to speak to them. We can pray for that backslidden friend or maybe that family member who stopped coming out to church. We can pray for them, but eventually we might need to challenge them and confront them. We can pray and we can pray. We can plan and we can plan. But sometimes, as Kevin DeYoung writes, we just need to do something. No point praying and praying that people would be converted if we don't do anything. No point praying and praying that backsliders would be brought back into the fold if if we don't do anything. No point praying and praying that visitors to our congregation would feel welcome if we don't do anything. No point praying and praying that we would get a building if if we don't do anything. You know, the gospel reminds us, doesn't it, that we have a saviour, we have a Jesus who didn't simply pray for the salvation of his people, the eternal welfare of his people. He went all the way to the cross. And while he is our saviour, while he is our Lord, He is also the great example of his people, the great example for his people. Fourth and finally, these verses highlight the importance of acknowledging providence. And that's what we see in Nehemiah. He, He sees all these doors opening to him in this chapter. The king is Asks him about what's troubling him. Now we think, of course the king would ask him. The, the, king, the king's watching him. But you know, why would the Persian king ask, ask this little Jewish cupbearer about what's troubling him? Uh, the king is saying, ask him about what he's requesting. You know, sometimes we can hear someone telling us about a problem that they have. And we say, oh, that's terrible. I'm really sorry to hear that. But that's all we say. But the king is saying, I see that you're troubled. Now, what are you really wanting me to do? The king has then permitted him to return and rebuild his city. And the king has provided him with letters to the governor and letters for the local timber merchant. And as Nehemiah thinks about all of this, he sees the hand of his God being upon him. And you know, friends, that's something we must never lose sight of. There is a God in heaven. There is a Lord who is living. A Lord who is reigning. A Lord who is working in the lives of his people. There is a God of providence. And when we see evidence of his work, our response ought to be one of acknowledging him. Our response ought to be one of praising him. 
our response ought to be one of saying with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. And having praised him, we should be saying with the psalmist, Come and see what our God has done. Acknowledging the God of providence. So friends, as we consider these four lessons from this courageous cupbearer, let me ask you a final question. We have seen his advanced planning. We have seen him acknowledging providence. We have seen his arrow prayers. We have, we have seen his active participation. We have seen all these things in this courageous cupbearer. What are we going to do with these lessons? How are they going to impact on our lives as individuals and as a congregation in the coming weeks, in the coming months? Will we be a people who are shooting up arrow prayers to the God in heaven? Will we be a people who are engaged in advanced planning and preparation for going about our congregational work? Will we be a people who are actively participating in the life of the congregation? And will we be a people who are acknowledging the providential hand of God in all things? So that none of us would say, well, it's down to this person or that person. But that we would say, the hand of our God was on us.